I'm really delighted that you're here today. If you're visiting with us, thanks so much for coming and welcome to Gateway. I'm going to do something a little differently today, something different than I usually do or than we try to do at Gateway. Let me say that. We're really serious here at Gateway about the Bible. We believe it is a divinely infused, unique expression of God's truth. And I'm going to say some things about the Bible in a moment. And so what we often try to do here at Gateway is take a passage from the Bible and break it open and try to, as best we can, before God and with his help, understand it, what it meant in its original context, and then take that and massage it into our lives Monday through Sunday and work it into our hearts and our minds and our emotions and see how it might apply to our week. Today, I'm going to give you more of uh, an interpretation than I typically do, more of a theory than I typically do. We are beginning a new series today. It's a series we're calling Beginnings, and it's in the first book of the Bible. We're going to work our way this summer through the book of Genesis, and we're going to begin today with what's got to be one of the most familiar passages of the Bible there is. We're going to look today at Genesis chapter 1. And again, I'm going to give you a different perspective on Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to try to convince you to change your perspective, certainly. But I want to broaden both our understanding of Genesis 1, but more importantly, more importantly, I want to broaden our understanding of the purpose of Genesis 1. Why Genesis 1 might have been written. Why, in fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis might have been written. I also want us to know before we get started even that you could easily make the argument that Genesis is the most important book of the Bible. It lays the foundation for everything that follows, both in terms of the overall story of the Bible, but also in terms of the themes of the Bible. So this summer, we're going to have a lot of fun. You're going to be familiar, even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, you're going to be familiar with a lot of the stories. And I'm telling you, some of the stories in Genesis are awesome. This is like lifetime movie kind of stuff that we're going to be covering this summer. But the first 11 chapters of Genesis are kind of different. And we're going to begin with some of that difference today. But I want us to start by making a confession of faith. Sometimes we do that here at Gateway. And uh, we'll often use the historic confessions of faith. Often we use the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes we use the Nicene Creed. But today I want us to use a contemporized version of the Apostles' Creed that began as a blog post from a professor and he put it out there and people began to tweak it and it's, it's like Wikipedia. It's turned into this, you know, this larger contemporary confession of faith. I actually emailed this guy this week and he and I had a hilarious dialogue about this creed. I, I thanked him for it. He wrote me back and was blown away that this creed was going to be used in a church service and I wrote him back and said, yeah, 250 years from now, scholars will debate and argue about where this creed came from, they'll find your picture on the internet and say, surely it couldn't have started with this guy. And of course, that began this long uh, dialogue. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand with me as we say this creed together. So let's begin with a confession of faith. And after the confession of faith, I want to give you just sort of five position points, just five things to keep in mind about the Bible as you read the Bible. And then we're going to, real quick, one, two, three, four, give you the flow of Genesis, larger, just big picture, what happens in Genesis, just the four big divisions of Genesis, and then we're going to dive in. 
the chapter 1, the story of creation. But let's say this confession together, folks. I believe in God the Father, source of all life, source of all love, creator of the universe and all that is in it, including me. I love that part. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, the only begotten Son of the Father, whose witness and sacrifice saves the universe and all that is in it. I believe in the Holy Spirit, God acting in the world, the voice of the prophets who animates the universe and all that is in it. These three are one God, the only God. I believe in the communion of saints, the church of the Father, Son, and Spirit, through which we are called to love one another as God loves us. To find identity and unity through baptism of water and spirit, fellowship, remembrance, and forgiveness through Eucharist, and to seek eternal. You may be seated. So, how many beans would you guess are in the jar? How many beans, don't say out loud, how many beans do you guess are in the jar? Okay, so those of you who think that there are, we'll try this, we'll go, we'll go 500 to 700, 700 to 900, 900 to 1100, 1100 to 1300, above 1300. You get the rest of the universe. Those of you who think that there are between five and seven hundred beans in this jar. I always tell y'all not to sit in the back now. Those of you who think there are between five and seven hundred beans in this jar, stand up. (laughs) All right, you may be seated. Those of you who think there are between seven and nine hundred beans in this jar, stand up. A few brave souls. You may be seated. Those of you who think there are between nine and 1,100 beans in this jar, stand up. You may be seated. I see certain couples are arguing over this. I didn't mean to create that. Those of you who think there are between 11 and 1,300 beans in this jar, stand up. All right, you may be seated. Those of you who think there are between 1,300 and infinity in this jar, stand up. Okay, you may be seated. There are now 804. So those of you who guessed between 7 and 900, stand again. Show off. All right, some of y'all did not get. <laughs> Let me ask you one more question. Stand up if your favorite kind of music is country or bluegrass. I'm embarrassed for you. Okay, (laughs) you may be seated. Stand up if your favorite kind of music is folk, easy listening, contemporary adult. Come on. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right, stand up if your favorite kind of music is rock. Lance gives us one of these. Yes! All right, you may be seated. Stand up if your favorite kind of music is R&B. Yeah, come on, represent. Where are the R&B people? All right, you may be seated. Stand up if your favorite kind of music is classical or jazz. 
<laughs> Go on, heavy, stand up. <laughs> All right, you may be seated. Stand up if I did not mention your favorite kind of music or you don't have any idea. All right, good. You may be seated. Listen, is knowing God more like knowing how many beans are in the jar or knowing the best kind of music? According to the authors of the Bible, knowing God is more like knowing how many beans are in the jar. Five things to keep in mind when you read the Bible. First of all, it expresses absolute knowable truths. It's like counting the beans in the jar. Second thing to know about the Bible when you read it, it is a unique, divinely inspired description of reality. It expresses divinely infused truths. I'm going to say more about that in coming weeks. I'm going to tease that a little bit. Third thing to know when you're reading the Bible, the Bible is without error in what it seeks to convey. It expresses inerrant truth. The Bible is without error in what it seeks to convey. Fourth thing to know about the Bible, it must be read in context. The Bible means what it meant to its original authors and readers. I was telling Diane this last night, I had a professor in seminary who every single class he would say, hey, men and women, if you discover something new, it's wrong. Because God is not going to reveal something to you that he's kept a secret for 2,000 years. It means what it meant to its original authors and readers. That's why you sometimes have to study the Bible. You've got to unpack the context. Fifth, much of the Bible, and this is fascinating, much of the Bible, think about this, is narrative. It is truth largely expressed as story. So the focal point of the Bible, the center of gravity for the Bible is I'm going to say this phrase twice. Interpreted stories intended to communicate rich theological truth. The center of gravity for the Bible is interpreted stories intended to communicate rich theological truths. I found a great resource over the last couple of weeks. It's called the Jewish Study Bible. It gives you really good study notes from a Jewish perspective on the Old Testament. They say this about Genesis. The Jewish Study Bible in Genesis says it presents its ideas on relationship to God to nature, on the relationship of God to the human race in general and to the people of Israel in particular, in ways that are foreign to the expectation of most modern readers. Check this. The vehicle through which Genesis conveys its worldview is neither theological tract nor religious philosophical proof nor confession of faith. Those are the kind of things you would expect from a religious book. But the vehicle for Genesis, rather is narrative. In other words, and this is how they summarize that paragraph, and if you miss everything else, don't miss this. For the author of Genesis, the lived relationship with God takes precedent over abstract theology always. The lived relationship with God takes precedent is more important than abstract theology always. All right, let me give you a quick survey of Genesis. The fourth section of Genesis, some of you will know, Donny Osmond played it on Broadway, The Coat of Many Colors. The fourth section of Genesis is the Joseph story, chapters 37 through 50. The third section of Genesis is the Jacob cycle, another one of the what a biblical historians call the patriarchs. The Jacob cycle, chapters 26 through 36, some great stories in that. The second section of Genesis is the story of Abraham, chapters 12 through 25, and the first section of Genesis is called the primeval or the prehistoric section. Our children have actually talked about Genesis 
A few weeks ago, they're doing a series through the Bible in the back in Kidstown. And so as I've talked about Genesis for the last couple of weeks, Aaron and Diane keep singing a song about Genesis. Please don't get them started. I want to get it out of my head. But we'll be talking for the first couple of weeks about the primeval section, the prehistoric section, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we're going to begin today with Genesis 1-1. And we'll go through Genesis chapter 2, verses 3. And this is the account of creation. So a couple of things to set you up for that, and then I'm just going to go through the flow of it and give you some of the implications. First of all, I want you to remember that today I'm offering you an interpretation. So I want you to put your own spiritual thinking caps and hearts on today as you hear what's going to be said today, because the most important thing is not what I say, but what God says. Secondly, I want you to read always everything, but today especially, Genesis 1, in light of the idea that the Bible means what it meant to its original authors and readers. It may not mean what we think it means to us. It means what it meant to its original authors and readers. It's going to mean the same thing to us. Got to. One more note. Of this section, that same Jewish study Bible of Genesis chapter 1, it says this, And check this, this will set you up for our theory. The correlations between things created on the various days exhibited a high degree of symmetry. The first three days describe the creation of generalities or domains. The next three chronicle the creation of the specifics or the inhabitants of the domains in the same order. And that's important. So, we're going to read Genesis 1, 1, through Genesis 2, 3, and you today are collectively going to play the part of God. And believe it or not, that's appropriate. Let's make sure we're awake and engaged. Out of reverence for God's Word, let's stand. You'll speak for God today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So verse 3, and God said, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light, and the darkness he called, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Some of the more modern translations translate vault, expanse, distance. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above the vault. And and it was so. And God called the vault. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So he's created, he's made some morphous out of the amorphous and he's made water and separated it by sky. And God said, So now he creates ground. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, And it was so. 
The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, God said a mouthful. And it was so. God made two great lights. Check this. Hold, pause, dramatic effect, drum roll. The greater light to what? Govern the day. And the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. and God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water seem with living creatures, and the birds fly across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and, and that moves about in it according to their kinds and, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And, and God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the water and seeds. And this idea of being fruitful and increasing is an idea of having dominion over. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds. The livestock according to their kinds. And all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may look a little bit of the trees and seed, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, So, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work of creating all that he had done. 
And all God's people said, they did. You may be seated. So here's the theory. The purpose of this passage, the purpose of Genesis chapter 1, is to lay out a big picture theological introduction to the nature of God and his world. Here's the theory, he said again. The purpose of this passage is to lay out a big picture theological introduction to the nature of God and the nature of his world. This is an unimaginably shocking, profoundly unique, if you understand its context, and we will over the coming weeks, profoundly unique, titanically immense theological introduction to the nature of God and the nature of his world. The purpose of Genesis 1 is not to lay out a cosmological blueprint. This is not a scientific document detailing the ultimate disposition of creation. The purpose of Genesis 1 is not to lay out a blueprint for how God created the world. The purpose of Genesis 1 is to give you an unbelievably mind-boggling picture of God's nature and the nature of God's world. Genesis 1 is probably a long poem intended to communicate five profound, shocking, titanic truths that would have shaken the ground underneath ancient Near Eastern readers and should shake the ground for you and I still. Those five truths, we're not going to spend a lot of time just going to give them to you. Those five truths are, number one, God is the author and creator of all that is. All of reality stems from his power. Yes, it does. You and I take that, for many of us, if you have a faith walk with Christ, you take that as assumptional, but I want you to be shaken by that. His creative activity, His command, all that is emanates from that. Secondly, God is sovereign. He rules over everything. His will is ultimately done. God is sovereign. No matter what you're going through, God is sovereign. Third, God is orderly. He acts with purpose, reality. His world is not ever random. Fourth, God established authority. There is an order, there is a hierarchy to reality. That's not imposed by human beings somehow. God has established order and authority. And finally, human beings have a high, unique, and profoundly holy place in God's world. You need to understand that almost all of what Western philosophy believes about human beings, which has in subsequent five or six centuries been turned against the faith, originally came from the faith. A pagan worldview has human beings wandering purposelessly in a world where the many gods act randomly and at a whim. And even they are not in charge. What's laid out here in Genesis chapter 1 is a very, very, very different worldview in which you, all of your activity, has a high and holy purpose. So when you blow it, it's a big, big deal. And ultimately, we're going to hear over the coming weeks just how badly we've blown it. But let me give you the flow of this passage. And I want you to get the theory here is that you understand the import, the significance, and what this author is attempting to communicate. You understand that from this flow and not from teasing out the creation blueprint. So let me give you the flow. Day one created light. Day one, light. Day two, 
sky. So remember what he did in day two is separate water from water and this expanse is created and he's essentially creating sky and water. Day three, land and plants. And I want you to know, I believe that what's happened there is the author of Genesis 1, and I'm going to tell you over subsequent weeks, I believe, contrary to much of modern biblical scholarship, I believe that was Moses, operating probably with a school of editors. What he's done here is he's essentially given you the realms. People who are used to living in kingdoms, or they're used to living in a tribal time when a, when a tribal leader ruled over a certain territory or a realm. What's been given you in the first three days in Genesis chapter 1 are the realms, or as the Jewish study Bible calls them, the categories of realmage. I can't remember their word. (laughs) It's giving you the territory. Now watch this, day four. Check it out. On day four, he created sun and moon. Remember, hint, to govern over the day and the night. Day five, he creates fish and birds to fly and swim and increase and multiply and rule over the expanse in the water. Day six, he creates land animals to roam and eat and rule over the land. And at the end of day six, the pinnacle of all of his creation, he creates humankind to rule over Everything. So what he's given here on days 4, 5, and 6, exactly according to the way Hebrews wrote poetry. And if you read the Psalms, you'll find this often. They'll make a point, they'll make point B, then they'll make point C. And then in the next verse, they'll make a sub-point of A, and then the next verse a sub-point of B, and the next verse a sub-point of C. That's how they communicated. Hey, this is a poem. What he's given in day 4, 5, and 6 are the rulers over the realms that were created on days 1, 2, and 3. And then, at the end of it all, to punctuate it all, what Moses gives us is what would be one of Moses' most important principles, I think having been revealed by God. There is and should be a rhythm to your lives because there was a rhythm, an order to what God created. So on day 7, he rested the Sabbath. I want you to know, this perspective is not unique. Most commentators have observed this pattern. As I said earlier, the Jewish study Bible, quote again, the correlations between things created on the various days exhibit a high degree of symmetry. The first days describe creation of generalities or domains. The next three chronicle the creation of specifics or the inhabitants of the domains. I would add the rulers of those domains. What's unique to me in this perspective. What's unique to me is the realization that the truth of this passage is seen in this overall pattern and not in the specifics of the layout. This is not a scientific document detailing the outline of creation. I want you to understand I'm suggesting something that could have really important implications in the dialogue about creationism and how God created the world. I don't think that's the point of Genesis chapter 1. This is a theological treatise introducing us to who God is and how the world relates to Him. As a way of emphasizing just how 
not new this is. Alex found for me, Alex is our associate pastor, and Alex found for me this week an article about Augustine, who was writing in the 300s, so roughly three centuries after Jesus. Augustine is talking about creation in general, and especially the first couple of chapters of Genesis, and this author says that Augustine draws out three core themes from the early part of Genesis. One, God brought everything into existence in a single moment of creation, and I won't read it now, I won't take the time. But I would encourage you later to go look at Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. And I would suggest to you that what is implied there is an instantaneous creation. That God spoke a word and the world came into being. However you define six days, it didn't take six days. He spoke a word and it was done. Now, that may not be what Psalm 33 means, but many commentators reading Psalm 33, 6 through 9 have suggested that that's what that passage means. So Augustine, writing 1,700 years ago, says God brought everything into existence in a single moment of creation. The second point Augustine makes is, but the created order is, according to Augustine, not static. God endowed it, Augustine believed, with the capacity to develop. And he used as an illustration of that the seed. A seed is planted in the ground, and then it, it springs forth and develops into something far more dramatic than you would have guessed from the little seed. And Augustine believed that God had planted in the nature of creation the same kind of development. Using more technical language, Augustine asks his readers to think of the created order as containing, listen to this, divinely embedded causalities. I know that's complicated, but think about it. That emerge or evolve at later stages. This is writing 1,700 years ago. Third point, according to Augustine, but contrary to what we know today as Darwinianism, creation's development, according to Augustine, isn't random. There are no arbitrary changes within creation, according to Augustine. The development of God's creation is always subject to God's sovereign providence. The God who planted the seeds at the moment of creation also governs and directs the time and the place of their growth, Augustine said. This article ends with Augustine's conclusions about creation, so let me read you that real quick. Further, I'm reading the article now further. He argues that a close reading of Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 has the following meaning. When day was made, God made heaven and earth and every green thing of the field. This leads him to conclude that the six days of creation are not chronological. Rather, they are a way of categorizing God's work of creation. God created the world in an instant, but continues to develop and mold it even to the present day. Okay, I'm not going to wrap up. I'm not trying to convince you to embrace Augustine's view of creation or any other theory about creation, including one that might be implicated by what I've said this morning. But I do want to suggest two vitally important things for you. And I want to suggest that part of what we've said about the meaning of Genesis 1 really does affect you tomorrow. So two things in conclusion. Number one, as a general principle, you and I need to be very careful about attaching our philosophy or our worldview or our theology to any particular scientific perspective. I'm certainly not saying that there are no scientific implications from what's taught in the Bible, but the Bible does, there are, but the Bible doesn't intend to be a scientific document. I believe the stories in the Bible are true 
even the ones that defy nature. I believe they actually happened. But the Bible does not address chemistry or biology or physics or math. There are principles in the Bible that have application for those, certainly. But the Bible is not a book of chemistry. Have you ever read about how many people in the church responded very badly when Copernicus realized that the earth orbited around the sun. We can actually make assumptions based on elaborate and perhaps exaggerated interpretations of the Bible. But we must be careful. The Bible may not share our assumptions. So we can easily find ourselves caught up in arguments on topics about which the Bible honestly has very little to say. Secondly, specifically concerning Genesis 1, Regardless of what understanding of creation you arrive at, make sure that you understand that Genesis 1 has a deeply profound, world-changing thing to say about God. And that's the central point of that passage. So from here on out, if you forget everything else, don't forget that. The point of Genesis 1, according to this author, is, wow, let me introduce you to God. Let's remember again, he really says five things about God. Number one, God is the author and creator of all that is. All of reality stems from his power, his creative activity, his command. All that is. Secondly, God is sovereign. He rules over everything. His will is done. And so no matter what you're going through today, no matter if it's a health issue, no matter if it's a financial issue, no matter if it's a relationship issue, God is in charge. He is affecting His will and His plan for you, and His plan is good. Thirdly, God is orderly. He acts with purpose. Reality, His world, is not ever random. I was thinking this week, many of you know Kim and Brian Butnow, and Kim delivered a baby a week and a half ago. Premature, but congratulations, Kim. And can't wait to see them and little Jackson. Still in the hospital, but he's doing great. For those of you who know Brian, Brian is seven feet seven, I think. And so Jackson was almost two months premature and still bigger than most of the babies in there. I was imagining Jackson gaining enough weight, getting healthy enough, he comes home. So let's imagine that we can endow Jackson with language and the capacity to think, but he's still a two-month-old baby. And he starts to cry. And when Jackson starts to cry, we know what's going on in Jackson's mind. Give me some food and give it to me now. Why aren't you giving me food right now? I'm starving. Well, it's coming. I've got to make sure that it's, you know, we're all copacetic and we're in the right place, Jackson. And I've got to make sure, ultimately, I'm trying to make sure that you're taken care of. No, because taking care of me would be giving me food right now. And then when he's a little older, it's going to be even more dramatic when Kim and Brian take him for bedtime. No! I don't want to go to bed. This is horrible. I pray to you, God, Kim and Brian, take me out of this crib. Release me from this prison. This is awful. This is terrible. Trust me, you're going to feel a lot better. Your life will go well. And we know that. Because we're older, we're wiser, we know how things happen. We Actually, we know more about how you're feeling than you do. 
God is sovereign. He's in control. And how often do you and I, wah, no, I want this to change right now. He's also orderly. So nothing that's happening to you and I is random. It's not purposeless. It has purpose. Fourth, God established authority. There is an order. There is a hierarchy to reality. To reality. And finally, human beings have a high, unique, and profoundly holy place in God's world. Deep within our bones, you and I, I think there rattles the suspicion that we're unworthy or that we're weak or that we're unloved or that we can't do it or that we don't measure up. God speaks into that deepest place and says, no, you're loved, you're purposeful, you're unique, you're profound, and your footprint matters greatly and deeply. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to have some fun as we work our way this summer. They won't all be that academic, I promise you. We'll have a whole lot of fun as we work our way through Genesis this summer, but I want you to keep in mind constantly that what the author is doing is he's sharing with us bone-shattering, profound theological truths, but he's sharing them to us through interpreted stories that have rich theological significance because God has given the author a lens through which to look at the stories and understand when real life was being lived, how that worked and how God interacted with that person and what it meant. And we're going to discover some awesome, fun, moving, hilarious things this summer as we work our way through Genesis. So join us. Genesis chapter 1. God created heaven and earth, and it was good. Let's pray. Father, we surrender this to you, and we ask that you use what has been said for your purposes. Lord, I especially ask that whatever is not of you, you would protect us. And Lord, redirect our thinking in ways that are consistent with you and your will. I also... Father, pray that you would be able to capture our hearts with the truth that you are sovereign and that you've created a world of order and that we are uniquely made and we have a high and holy purpose toward which you are moving us and growing us and calling us. Hear our prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.